Turundusraadio. Hello dear listeners, welcome to our marketing radio talk show number 60. My name is Hanno Malnaritz, I'm your host today from Marketing Institute in Estonia and my co-host is Raul Galeb, who is a PR specialist. Hello. Our guest today via Skype is uh, Peter Fisk, who is um, founder and the CEO of Genius Works and also considered to be one of the most admired thinkers about marketing in the world. Hello. Our today's topic is seeing things differently. And to introduce it, I would like to say that uh, the seeing things differently principle has been one of the most important in the business for, I don't know, the last 20 years or even more. You, Peter, have been one of the most prominent presenters of the idea. idea. And if I remember now my about a bit more than 20 years in marketing, I think that this principle has always been with me. And I always thought that, is it because I knew it myself or is it because I read your books? And I don't know what is the right answer. But, uh, but to start with, what has been the biggest challenge with teaching the companies to see things differently? I guess uh, seeing things differently starts with a company who always wants to see the world from their point of view. So the bank thinks that it's the most important company in the world. And the bank thinks that everything is that it does is the most important thing for, for the customer. Or the furniture company thinks it's the most important thing in the world. And it thinks its furniture is the most important th- thing that the customer could ever buy. So I guess the biggest challenge is to stop thinking about your products in your own company and to start thinking about the customers and their world. How do companies react to your message? Well, they say, hey, but our company is the most important thing. We've got to talk about our products because we've got to sell our products and customers are interested in our products. Um, so I guess, you know, the reaction is defensive, that they, they, they believe that they are the most important thing in the world. They're the center of the universe for the customer. Um, but I guess the center of the universe for most uh, customers for all of us really is tends not to be the companies we work with it tends to be our families or it tends to be our lives it's not the supermarket which we buy our food from it's the it's the dinner which we sit down to with our family in the evening for example it's not the 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 credit card which we get from the bank but it's the it's the new handbag or the new car which we're able to buy with the money which the bank allows us to use um so you know, they're, they're defensive, um, but they start to realize, well, hey, you know, our, our livelihood depends on the customer and maybe we do need to see things from a different perspective. And what I find working with companies all over the world in all different sectors is that when they do start to see things from a customer's point of view, they see things differently. They see bigger opportunities and they see things which are more relevant and more important and more engaging to the customers and therefore um, they they have a good chance of being more successful. Can you give us some examples about the companies who have started the process seeing things from customer point of view and made tremendous tremendous breakthroughs or or changes? Sure, so uh, I mean I guess there's there's simple ones like banks, so I worked with a bank in America uh, called Umpqua Bank and you know, banks are always, as I said, they're always trying to sell you their products, their savings or their loans, or their credit cards, their mortgages. Uh, so typical financial products. But then they realize that for the customers, they want something different. So if you're 18 years old and you're just setting out in life, then you want maybe a bit of support if you're buying your your first home. You lack confidence and maybe you need guidance in terms of well, how do you buy a house? If you're setting up your business, then you know that's a whole new world, and it's not just the, the the money or the banking which matters. It's actually lots more details which they could help you with. Or if you're wanting to enjoy life and you're retired and you're you know 70 years old, then actually it's about making your money go further. So by developing what they call propositions rather than products, 
they were able to talk to the customers in language and about things which were much, much more important to them. Another example, seeing things differently, is a hotel chain, a boutique hotel chain, uh, which I worked with in the Indian Ocean, so in Asia. And for many, many years, it's, it saw the conventional wisdom was that Western uh, hol ho holiday makers, honeymooners and retired couples would come to the Indian Ocean to the boutique hotels. And therefore, they needed to have infinity pools and luxury dining and wonderful spa massages. Um, but then they realized that by looking at the data and looking at the statistics, a different group of customers were likely to provide their future revenues. And this was the fast rising uh, new middle class of, of India, particularly. And the new middle class of India tend to be much younger. They tend to be kind of 20 to 30 years old. They tend to travel in families and friends. Um, they tend not to look for scuba diving or for kind of relaxation. They want to have fun. They want to have parties. They want to do gambling because they're not allowed to do gambling in, in the mainland of India. Um, and they want to do karaoke. So a very different set of product requirements from a different audience. And so this boutique hotel chain, they said, well, as the world changes, as our customers change or different audiences is the new growth area, we need to change our products and services too. And, and the final one, which might seem a scary one, but uh, comes from the world of funerals. And uh, I, I approached this project with a little bit of trepidation, uh, particularly when the CEO of the funeral company uh, said to me, we want to find ways to grow the business. So what we um, did was to look at around the world and say, well, what are the different ways in which people pay for funerals? And actually we found in Holland that around 80% of people pay for their funeral by the time they're 30. Whereas if you look at somewhere else, like uh, the UK, for example, or Germany, then most people don't actually pay for their funerals, they die, and then somebody else makes the choices for them and often pays. And so being able to change who pays for the funeral and when they pay for the funeral also changes the mindset so when people are 30-something or even 20-something, can they pay for their, their funeral then? They pay it as part of kind of their, their financial planning. So they might get out life insurance or they might uh, start paying into a pension. And it's just one of those additional things which you pay towards uh, during your adult life, particularly when you buy a house or when you might get married. And so when people do start paying, they start to think more about what kind of funeral do I want? Um, so instead of people being sad and it being black and it being a, 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 a negative kind of occasion, they want it to be a positive occasion. They want to be remembered. They want people to have a good time. They want to have their favorite music playing and their favorite photos or videos on the walls. And the average price of a funeral when somebody pays for it after they've died or, or the relatives do is about 2,500 euros. Um, whereas the average price paid by somebody when they pay for it when they're about 25 to 30 years old and they buy it like an insurance product, the, the average price is about 15,000 euros. Wow. And so suddenly they pay much more because it means much more to them. It's much more important to them. It's much more, it's more, it's, it's more, much more personal and it's much more positive experience. So for the, for the funeral company, by seeing things differently, they're changing their audience, they're changing the motivation of that audience, and therefore they're selling products which are much richer, so they can sell additional products, they can sell premium products, and the profit margin in that is, is, is huge compared to what it was before. Absolutely. Very good example. Uh, actually, I, you won't ask again? No? Okay. I go on here. For me, I'm listening uh, to you, and it seems to me that actually this differentiation uh, is nothing else than understanding one step uh, further, understanding your customer, is it statistics or, or asking them? So it's not something that somebody is sitting at home and thinking, no, I have to make something really different. No, you go to your customer and you, you're trying to find out what the customer is needed. Uh, is it right? I guess in the past, I, I agree with you, and I guess in the past, most marketing people have said, we want to be different from the competition and they get obsessed about the competition. And so they sit there with their products and their competitors sit there with their products and they're obsessed with each other. 
and they almost don't think about the customer. And so they're both pushing the same products or very similar products at the average customer. Now, the first problem is that there's no such thing as an average person. So if I asked you, are you average? You'd say, no, no. But, you know, most marketers... Here in Estonia, we are still average, but okay. I don't believe you. So certainly the Estonians who I've met are certainly not average. <laughs> they're very individual and different and they're charismatic. And, you know, most marketers have got to learn to stop treating their customers as averages. And, you know, having one advertising campaign, one product solution, one price for all their customers, because that assumes that all their customers are the same. And that's kind of patronizing and condescending. So instead of just being obsessed with having the average solution and therefore being slightly different from your competitor, which usually ends up being slightly cheaper or slightly more expensive, the real challenge for marketers is to be relevant to your customers. To, to really understand your customer more deeply and to see things from their perspective. And that's what seeing things differently more than anything else is all about. I absolutely do agree with you. Tell me, what is more difficult for a company? Is it more difficult to see the things differently or to act accordingly? <laughs> Uh, both are difficult. <laughs> Because I know it takes a lot of courage to say that we are not going to target now to all of the customers, but we take a small segment and we are going to satisfy their needs. Every company, every manager is afraid yeah. of taking that type of decision, isn't it? Yeah. I, w I would be tempted to say that it's harder to make to make it happen. Um, but the reality is that I think actually it's harder for people to see things differently and to have the confidence in their beliefs to do things differently. So, you know, once the funeral company had decided that they were going to develop a, a, a funeral product for the 25-year-old and they were going to sell it through as an insurance product through kind of financial advisors, They can make that happen. It's not hard to make that happen. It's kind of an insurance-based financial product and you, 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 you develop the messaging and everything around it. The hard bit is to have the confidence and the bravery to, to, to think in that way and to convince your colleagues and your bosses and your shareholders that this is the right new thing to do. So to answer your question, I actually think that uh, seeing things differently is often harder than doing things differently. And it means the more different the current, the new approach is to our current one, the more difficult it is to sell. The, it doesn't mean it's more difficult because if you found something which customers really want, <laughs> then it should be very easy. Um, you know, marketing is not actually about selling things to people who, the, who don't want things. Marketing is actually about meeting people's needs. And so if we can really find out what their needs or their wants and aspirations are, then it shouldn't be hard to sell. So, you know, saying, saying something is hard to sell is, 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 is the wrong thing for a great marketer. Um, a great marketer should have found the real need and aspiration in the customer and then being able to match that. In, in, a, in a positive way. Um, you know, if you look at Apple's products, you look at Nike's products and you know, Coca-Cola, many of this, they don't have problems selling their things. Um, you know, their, their challenge is about looking for the next aspirations, the next emergent wants and needs of the customer. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, but if you consider selling the ideas inside the company to our oh, colleagues. Yeah. So, so yes, I mean, particularly as you look to colleagues who are not marketers, who have less understanding of customers, particularly in engineering companies and financial service companies and products and any type of product-centered companies, then you'll find people who are more and more um, immersed in the world of the technology or the technical specifications of those products. And you know, getting them to understand what the customer really wants, but also to, to understand why you want to do something in a different way um, is often quite hard. And you know, the way I do that is not to present lots of research statistics to people, um, which says, you know, sort of 72% of people want this and 67% of people want it like that. And 
because they kind of just glaze over. I, I really take not just the marketers, but I take all sorts of people, the technology people, the financial services people, the operational people, to, out to meet customers, to spend time with real people and to, to really feel and to see um, how they can make people's lives better. And you know, ultimately, everybody is a marketer in a company. They're all about finding ways in which they can understand and then to um, engage and to, to, to meet the, the changing wants and needs of those customers. Here in Estonia, we have many loghouse companies, for example. But, but anyway, you could take this example or another example. For me, it's interesting to understand what are the easy steps uh, for a company or a product manager or a marketer who actually is facing the problem that all what he or she is seeing is only its his product and and if you ask him do something differently he still sees just his own product and it, it, if it's bank he just sees their, their products they can't make uh, themselves uh, to think differently what are the steps you suggest for those people the, the, the first step is incredibly simple. It's to spend time with your customer in their lives. So it's not to go out there and just say to a customer, what do you want from our company? So what do you want from your bank or what do you want from your, um, I don't know, your, your furniture company? Um, but it's to actually spend time with their, them in their lives to understand how do they use money? What else are they doing? If they're buying furniture, what kind of house are they trying to 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 to, to design or to to furnish? Um, so, what are the things which really matter to the customers? And spending you know at least two hours with your customer, not with a tick list of questions, but actually just listening to them, observing them, and understanding what matters to them in their lives suddenly becomes very very important. And then if a, a group of people do that from the company, and typically it's not just the product or marketing managers, it could be the, the other departments too, they come back to the office and they spend some time thinking about this and talking about what they see. And the big, big question they should be asking themselves, whatever industry they're in, is how can we make people's lives better? And that's why we have companies. That's why we have brands. Um, ultimately, they make money for shareholders or for owners. But the reason they exist is actually to make people's lives better in some way, to add a little bit of something to the universe. And so if they can sit there having spent sort of two hours to, to a full day with the customer and together to discuss how can we make people's lives better in some way, then I'm sure they will find hundreds of new ideas and insights which they can start to kind of evolve what used to be product thinking into something which is much more attractive and engaging and relevant to, to their customers. What has been the most radical change in business thinking in your practice that you have gone to help somebody and, and, and then you have changed or they together with you have changed something really radically? Uh, I guess the funeral example would be the most radical one because we turned uh, we turned death into life. <laughs> so instead of selling to people, to, so instead of selling funerals to to the relatives of dead people, we were selling it to people who were young and full of life, and we were selling it about not not commiserating death, but we were about celebrating life. But what has been and, most successful, if I ask that way? Okay, so you know, I, I think <laughs> probably that's a, the same. A good one and, and the, um, the, the most successful from a financial point of view is, is, is probably about 70% um, uh, improvement in margins was, was there. Um, to give you another good example of, of one which, which, which really was um, a, a transformational um, project for, for a client uh, was Philosophy Skincare. So Philosophy Skincare is a, um, is a women's uh, cosmetics product uh, made in Phoenix, Arizona in America. And uh, what they did was to look at, well, who buys our products? And they have a great uh, loyal customer base of people who particularly buy it through direct channels and uh, through QVC on television. And what they did was to recognize that you know, these, these, this group of customers, they weren't the largest in the market, but what they did was that they did not buy cosmetics because it was supposed to be scientifically better to make your skin look you know, younger or brighter or whatever, 
They did it because they wanted to have confidence in themselves. So the insight was that it was not about vanity or the, the image of your face, um, but it was about the confidence inside. And this network of people were actually quite um, quite close to each other on, on, on Facebook and other types of social media. They liked connecting with each other. And what we did was to say, well, hey, actually, um, you know, they would love to be part of a community. So instead of just talking to philosophy as a brand, philosophy became the facilitator of facilitating the community of people who bought their products. And these women, they were mainly women who, who bought the products, started talking to each other. They started um, sharing uh, the, their hopes and dreams and their fears about everyday life. And then they started buying the products for each other. And so gifting became a huge market between these customers. So being able to buy products for my friends. So in the same way as you might buy a bunch of flowers for uh, a good friend, if they have a celebration or something, maybe a bad day, then instead you might buy them a, a cosmetics product. And so making that simple and building a community. So you know, that had a huge financial impact in terms of the performance of the, of the company and the brand. But also, I think, you know, it was a striking example of the ways in which marketing is changing. You know, marketing used to be about um, pushing products at people through through channels. Um, and so it was like a one-way system of pushing things at people. And the relationship used to be between, between the brand and the customer. And today, it's much less like that. So we live in a networked world. And that network might be a social network, social media network, or it might be a physical network in terms of a physical community. But people trust other people much more than they trust brands. You know, if you, if you, if you go on, on vacation somewhere, you look for a hotel on TripAdvisor, you don't trust what the hotel says about itself. And so people trust each other and people will increasingly buy from each other. And so the relationships which brands need to build are between customers, not between themselves and customers. Loyalty is between customers. I'm loyal to this group of people. And therefore, if the brand can be the facilitator of that, it can be incredibly successful. And if the brand can find ways in which it can sell its products between customers as opposed to at customers, it can be uh, much more profitable too. Peter, tell me, are there any industries that need the transformation most or or are there industries that don't need it, that have been done already, the transformations that are properly focused to clients and their needs? Um, I, I, I really don't think that there's one industry which you could uh, say is behind the times in, in, in every way. So, you know, lots of people say that financial services, uh, because of the financial crisis, they need to fundamentally change. Uh, but if you look at financial services, then you know, there's aspects of financial services which are incredibly innovative, disruptive and leading, uh, leading the way in making life better. Um, so if you look across Africa, for example, Safaricom developed a um, financial service product, which is by SMS. And so for people who do not have credit cards or bank accounts in Africa, they can pay for things or they can uh, uh, give other people money, give their family money by SMS. And so SMS became a currency of, of, of money um, and they called it M-Pesa. Uh, the Spanish word for, for, for money. And so M-Pesa has become the most successful financial service brand in all of Africa um, through quite a simple form of innovation. So that's banking. You know, many of our banks still need to transform themselves in big ways, but, but we see great innovations. I think one of the biggest uh, innovations, one of the biggest sectors uh, will be healthcare. Um, so healthcare at the moment is still done very conventionally, very traditionally, uh, with pharmaceutical companies spending huge amounts of money developing blockbuster drugs, which are then sold to doctors, and then the doctors supposedly and partially then prescribe them to patients. Uh, Pharma 2.0, which all the big pharmaceutical companies are kind of talking about and looking at, is all about a very different way in which uh, the customer or the patient is in control of the healthcare experience and makes much more choices and works with you know the, if they if they have funding from the government then they they decide how their 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 funding is spent 
So I think pharmaceuticals, and particularly with technology kind of converging with pharmaceuticals, the ability to have uh, uh, life monitoring systems attached to your body so that, you know, maybe maybe it's a, like a jawbone bracelet or maybe it's something more sophisticated, but being able to measure your blood pressure and your metabolic rate and so on in everyday life suddenly changes the way in which we, we maintain our well-being as well as diagnose uh, health issues. So I think that's one of the areas where we'll see most change in the future. Actually, I turn back to our log houses and wooden houses we <laughs> love to produce here in Estonia. It seems still we have discussed it uh, 59 times already Probably. In, different, <laughs> in, in different shows, but we're still in, in front of a problem. And this problem is called that we have no ideas what to do uh, to make our log houses more attractive. Do you have any idea? <laughs> Yeah. How to think okay. differently. <laughs> yeah, why we ask about the log houses is that uh, we are Europe's, I think, fourth biggest exporters of log houses. Sometimes the first. The tiny Estonia, and sometimes they even tell that we are the first one. So the companies do something right. There are a lot of them, but still often we see that uh, they are not, they are probably not. In most cases, they are selling just the price, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... I need your help then. So, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. So, so let's think about this. So who is the customer for the log houses? Usually there are two types of customers. One might be a, read, a, read, um, uh, a real estate developer. Yeah. And mostly uh, it, it, it's uh, either um, a public yeah. body. So it means that they are running tenders. Okay. And their usually lowest price is w at least one of the components, if if not the the most important. And oh. then it might be a private body that is developing maybe an area that is a smaller one. Their price still matters, but probably some other things as a well. Twenty or thirty houses, for yeah, example. 20, yeah, twenty, thirty houses, the most small developers. Okay. And, and, and there might be also a private customer who tries to buy their own house for the family for the next fifty years. For example, Japanese. So I don't know why, but they they love our. House. Houses. Okay, that sounds good. Um, there's lots of Japanese noise. So, <laughs> so okay. So we, we we could think about each of the different customer groups and what are the motivations. But let's just choose one. So should we choose the individual? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So so what is the motivation of an individual? Do you think for buying a, a log house? Probably you can have different groups of people there, among the individuals. Okay. But, but, yeah. And, give me some, give me some yeah, and I, I think that at least one of them is uh, is the family who thinks that uh, the log house is healthy. Yeah. Uh, okay. There is some kind of theory that it's it breathes breathes well. Yeah. Somehow yeah. it's good air in the yeah. in the log house. Okay. Uh, kind of good good vibes. It's it looks natural, and we really love the natural design, and probably the clients as well. And I know in Japan. There is one more thing that the log house is earthquake resistant or not resistant, but uh, but somehow kind of according to the to the yes, yes. to the it's rules, not so or, static yeah, somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I understand. So 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 you have an interesting idea there about being healthy. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so, so it's like it's not the fact they're made of wood. It's like they're healthy houses. Okay. Or they're, you know, it's a bit like organic food. They're organic houses. Yeah, that's true. It's like going on a kind of, you know, a, a health spa. Um, it's like going on a, on a vacation to, you know, in alpine forests or something like that. It's about buying um, sustainable clothing or sustainable, you know, electric cars. It's about and and suddenly, I guess, when you start to think in this way about what the customer is buying, they're not buying a log house. They're buying healthy family life or they're buying my personal health or they're, they're, they're buying my well-being or my perception of well-being. Now, how, how much more do you think people pay for organic vegetables than for normal vegetables? I think the general price difference is it in about thirty percent. Yes, up to up to thirty, yeah. Okay. But I'm not very so, sure about that. Okay, but so twenty to thirty percent would be be quite normal, um, and then you have people who you know not only make choice positive choices about their health and will be prepared to pay every day thirty percent more for their their food, 
But you have people who might buy, you know, healthy supplements or they might buy special types of tablets or they might go in special types of spa vacations, which cost maybe three times as much as the, as the cheapest vacation they could go on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, they might buy a type of vacuum cleaner, which has a pollen filter in it and costs twice as much as the normal kind of vacuum cleaner and so on. Um, you know. I guess the point is that as soon as you start to think about the motivation of the customer, and you gave me just an example of health there, then people, it's, it becomes emotional. And it's not about the functional wood and, and, and so on. And it becomes emotional. It's about my family. It's about my life. It's about my well-being. And people emotionally will pay much more for things which are very important to them. So suddenly you increase the priority to them. And you inc you increase the uh, as marketers the price elasticity how much somebody would pay extra for it, and therefore you kind of have to start marketing it in a different way. So the conversation with the the customer no longer is about you know do you want a wooden house from Estonia, but do you want to live a healthier life, um, or for your children do you want to have a healthier life and 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 all the other things which might go with it. So you start to change the conversation and it's a very different way of thinking about it. And then once you have that way of thinking, you might be able to target customers better. So you look for customers who buy organic food and maybe they're, target, they're a good target customer to sell these houses to, or customers who go on a certain type of vacation or customers who buy a certain kind of uh, low carbon emission car. And they would be great target audiences for these, for these log houses. So by thinking this different way and getting some ideas very quickly, just by having a conversation with the customer, it creates a hypothesis by which you can then start to think differently about who is your target audience and what is your value proposition and what is the motivation by which they buy it and what is the motivation by which they would pay more for it. I think it's a great example, but I know that uh, probably most of the Estonian um, um, owners or, or top managers of the lockhouse uh, yep. companies will tell that, oh, you know, the market is not so big that we, we, we could allow us to segment it. We should sell houses to everyone. Oh, well, they're, they're fools. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the Thank you. We will tell them. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is that nobody needs 100% of the market. Um, and the reality is also in today's world that the biggest companies are not always the best ones. So if you look at um, the companies with the highest market share in any sector, so, you know, GM, General Motors, still makes more cars than any other company in the world. But it's certainly not the most profitable. So just by having lots of customers or just by selling lots of products, does not make you the most successful company. If you look in the car industry in Europe, the most profitable car company is Porsche. And if you look at how many units of cars it sells, how many vehicles it sells compared to GM or Volkswagen, then it's minuscule. But the profit margin is much bigger. And, and obviously what it's doing is it's targeting a niche audience. And so we've got to get away from this idea that you know, more volume, more sales, more market share is the measure of success. It's not always the case. That was only when we used to sell commodities and all products were equal. Um, but when you have differentiated products and when, when you can charge a premium for them, then it's about targeting and it's about finding these smaller audiences which are much more valuable to you, which is the smart way of running business. Very good. Just my final my final question is, you have been working with so many different industries, so many different companies all over the world. Yeah. What are your sources to find the new ideas? Let's say so that you have the information from the customer and might be that the company is doing everything what the customer wants. Do you look at the other sources or how do you combine the information to come to the, let's say, the one idea that makes the difference? Um, well, let me let me t say first of all, I don't think ever that the cust that that the that the the customer has run out of everything which they need. So there's always something more which you could do for the customer. Um, you know, nobody needed an iPad before Steve Jobs created one. So there's still an opportunity. Um, 
I think in general, um, you know, what is the best source of ideas uh, beyond talking to the customer is to look to other markets. Um, so I call these parallel markets. So, for example, if you're in, in telecoms, uh, you know, Estonia Mobile Telecom might want to look at retailing and you can learn ideas from retailing. Um, you could learn ideas from automotive. You could learn ideas from the entertainment industry, particularly. Um, you could learn ideas from the travel industry. And, you know, I think you can learn very little from your competition because you're kind of very similar to them. So it's not what you learn from people in your sector, but you can learn a lot from people in other sectors, from competitors or, or companies in other sectors who are often not competitive. So you can actually go and talk to them. And so, you know, you can find suddenly a telecoms person going and talking to their peer in the bank or in the supermarket or in the travel, in the airline. So, you know, suddenly you find lots and lots of ideas by which Air Baltic, for example, in Latvia, um, has been very successful in terms of doing with its customers. So why can't you apply that to telecommunications? or something which a supermarket has been able to do, and therefore how can you not apply that to telecommunications? Because it's the same customers who use these things. And if you find some kind of service or some kind of um, way of communicating things and, and supporting the customer, which works, which the customer likes, which they're prepared to pay for, it's a great experimental lab, which then you can then take those ideas and you can bring them to your own industry. And so, you know, I think parallel markets and taking things across borders uh, is incredibly powerful. And it's actually what Leonardo da Vinci did uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You know, he started as a, an, a, an, a sculptor and then he became a uh, artist uh, from his sculpting. He was able to draw better art because he understood how the body moved. Uh, but then he became a mechanic because he understood how the muscles worked from his sculpting. And so, you know, by crossing industries or crossing genres, as Leonardo da Vinci did, he was able to make breakthroughs. He was able to do things which nobody had ever thought of before. I think it's a very good, uh, very good example. It just reminds me, it was um, several, several years ago when I was working in the fashion industry, and we had a, a meeting with a bank talking about product development. And it was okay. very interesting when the bank guys told us that it takes them about one and a half year to to create a new product. And then we, from the fashion industry, looked at them and told that you're welcome to learn from us. It takes us two weeks to create a new product. Okay. The product is not the similar, but the ways of developing and the ways of doing it might be enriching for both, both sides. Absolutely. <laughs> move on with our big helpful site it's blog euromonitor.com and this time actually they have brought up uh, an interesting subject about uh, innovation that comes uh, to us through nanotechnology and in this article actually they are trying to to say that uh, the nanotechnology has already changed many things for example they say that there are more than uh, 1,600 different um, products, uh, uh, fabrics uh, that, that, that also the nanotechnology has already changed. Uh, so, but, but from other side, uh, the question comes, uh, what they actually uh, stress here is that if, if we have so many new uh, innovative products uh, from nanotechnology, then we have to be ready to know what to do with them, how to make a laundry, what, how to uh, wash them at home, uh, what are actually the dangerous uh, about it, what we should know. And, and when I was reading all this article uh, and, and also what we discussed uh, today with you, this different thinking, then I thought that actually this nanotechnology is not only about uh, producing things, but the same nanotechnology means hundreds of services, hundreds of other products that are has to be developed because of those uh, products developed with nanotechnology. So my question to you is, uh, what do we miss? What kind of uh, business challenges we see here uh, as a marketers? 
I think the, the, the biggest challenge of all is not to get either scared or confused by the technology. So when we start talking about nanotechnology and nanotubes and uh, all this kind of stuff, then it can be, it can be quite intimidating. Um, I give you an example of, I was using nanotechnology the other day without knowing it. I was cleaning my car and I was using a cloth, it's called an e-cloth. I bought it from my supermarket for um, about five euros. And it said, you can clean your car and you don't need to use water. You can clean your windows, you don't need to use water or, deter or you don't need to use detergent. Um, you can clean your surfaces in your kitchen without using detergent. And I didn't understand why that was the case, but um, they, they, they showed some evidence and then I tried it. And it really was incredibly successful in ter terms of making my windows incredibly clean and, uh, and, and, and sort of silver surfaces. And when I researched this product, I found that it was uh, using very small silver nanotechnology particles. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't care about that. But what I did care about was the fact that, you know, this was a way in which I could clean my windows or car without using very polluting uh, detergents, uh, soaps. So it was an environmentally friendly way of doing things, but it also was something which actually gave me a better solution. So it cleaned my windows better. And that's an example where nanotechnology is in our existing products, but we don't realize it. And so, you know, I think, again, it's about thinking about the customer. It's thinking about, you know, what is the problem the customer is trying to solve? How can I do things in a better way? And actually sustainability, so how can I be more environmentally friendly, um, is a great stimulus uh, to innovate. Uh, so you think about, well, how can I cause less pollution? How can I use less carbon emissions? How can I and, uh, use less energy? And then suddenly you find ways by using these technological fabrics, which actually you can help the consumer to, to do something, but in a way which is better for the world at the same time. But, but aren't there, this, you, you said that we should not be afraid of technology, but aren't there yeah. some, some uh, places like this nanotechnology and also I would compare it to genetical food that there are people yeah. really are afraid. Uh, what should the companies who are actually producing those nano things, uh, what should they do uh, to, uh, to encourage us to, 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 say, to say that uh, uh, should they uh, hide uh, this technology behind of the product, or should they do something else? Well, I, I think I, I to encourage us. Yeah, I don't think we should be f afraid of nanotechnology. We'll come to genetically modified food in a second, but you know, nan nanotechnology. Most of it doesn't have a negative perception. Um, people kind of don't really understand it. Um, you know, I think it's about understanding for, as a marketer. It's about understanding what the real benefits are. Um, so. For example, my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, is a swimmer, and she swims to a good national standard. And uh, one of the kind of fabrics, which is most common for kind of swimmers today, is called a Carbon Pro swimsuit. Mm -hmm. And this is about helping you to swim faster. And so, you know, it's about being water resistant and water, and 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 therefore more streamlined and less friction through the water. But what I care about and what she cares about, actually, is being able to swim 0.5 seconds faster after having trained for 10 days, of, you know, 10, 10 training sessions a week, every day of the week. Um, you know, something which is going to help her to get that little bit better, she's going to love. And so, you know, it's not about what's inside the material. It's about kind of the, the, the real benefit to the customer about being able to swim faster. Um, and I think in general, you know, if you look at genetically modified uh, foods and so on, we need to kind of understand what's happening. We need to see the bigger picture. Um, so I work with Syn Syn uh, Syngenta and Syngenta is, is the world's largest uh, GM food uh, crops uh, technologists. And, you know, we have, a, we have a global population which, you know, is getting towards 7.5 billion people today. Um, and we can't feed them. And even if we grew all the crops we could, we have less and less land to feed them on because of urban development and desertification. So we have less land. 
And we also have lots and lots of uh, uh, crops which are um, sub subject to all sorts of diseases today. And they were telling me, or sorry, a farmer was telling me that typically um, when he grows his crops, he sprays them with pesticides probably once every week during the summer. So about 30 times a year. Yum, yum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these pesticides, these pollutants, which are harmful to our bodies, we would not need if we had uh, genetically, scientifically enhanced, uh, enhanced crops. We'd be able to grow crops in Africa in places which need less water. We'd be able to add nutrients and so, you know, reduce cancer, for example, by putting certain types of uh, uh, nutrients inside these crops. And therefore, in the same way as you have uh, fluoride in your water to improve the health of your teeth, then you know, being able to improve the, the well-being of, of all of our citizens at very little ex extra cost. So, you know, I think sometimes products get a negative press. And what marketers need to do is to really to be able to start uh, to tell the story, to tell the story in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way which helps people to see the benefits to them. And to see how you know they can live a better life by doing some of these things. And GM food is actually helping you to live a better life. Nanotechnology is helping you to swim faster or to clean your car better, um, and lots of other things as well. I mean, it, it it might be just about making fabrics which are kind of you know stretchier or better fitting or com more comfortable at the same time. So you know, I think it's really about looking at how can you enhance the product. And, and do much more for customers as a result of that. Yeah, I do agree. We had um, a kind of a similar consideration about uh, the nanotechnology some years ago or several years ago when we um, launched uh, the first um, suit that was uh, made of fabric, fabric uh, uh, treated uh, by nanotechnology. And that yeah. made the suit uh, water repellent and grease resistant. And uh, it was very kind of a very good quality. And we really had discussions, should we talk about the nanotechnology or should we just tell that this is the first class suit mm -hmm. uh, and, and the first class suit approach won. And the, success, uh, the suit was very successful because uh, from the marketing point of view, even if you say that it's a first class suit or, or however you call it, and you have yeah. very concrete things to say how it's different, then it really worked. It wasn't just kind of empty words you tried to, tried to build around, around the product. Yeah, I, I love socks which don't smell. I yep. love suits which don't get creased when I put them in my suitcase. You know, all these things are, are, are the result of nanotech. And I don't think about it. I just think about, hey, it's good. I want it. <laughs> yeah. But for marketeers, I also think that it's important uh, that, uh, that, that, that you think how can the innovation in one area uh, change your business. It means that if I'm the lawn, if I am in, having a laundry business, then I ha I need to know how it's going to develop because of the new new uh, the developments in the fabric. Uh, it might be treated by nanotechnology or or whatever innovative in a in a fabric or textile we see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, you know the article which you, you're talking about um, talks a lot about the the opportunities for laundry manufacturers. Um, personally, I think there's more opportunities for textile manufacturers. Yeah. Um, so you know the the to, from a financial point of view, you can do much more um, in terms of creating a swimsuit which costs two hundred or three hundred euros um, compared to one which costs one hundred euros. Um, compared to how much more you can charge for, for washing powder. Um, so, you know, I think in many ways it's about thinking about how can you enhance the clothing and therefore how can you make the performance and make people's lives better as a result of that, more than just thinking about the laundry products which, which, are, which are there to use it. But, you know, this, this, this is an example, the nanotech is an example of, of so many different technologies which, which are surrounding us today. Um, and the Internet of Things, uh, where every different device will have, you know, a, 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 an Internet product, they'll, they'll be able to connect to the computers. Um, so, you know, everything will be connected within a short number of years. And this is kind of, you know, we don't need to think too much about it. It's for marketers. It's about looking well, saying, 
how can I make that useful to people? And how can I make people's lives better rather than getting you know, completely uh, phased by the technologies every time? And let the technologists themselves think about you know, the fantastic names and the fantastic science behind it. Our challenge is to understand you know, how can we make people's lives better. So who are your candidates for a weekly marketing award this time? Can I have two? Uh, yes, but uh, yes. one is okay. better, two is even more yes. better. <laughs> I'll, I'll have one global and I'll have one local. <laughs> okay, go on. Um, and uh, the, the global one comes from um, some work I've been doing in terms of developing my new book, um, which will be coming out soon. It's called Game Changes, and it's about how companies all around the world, uh, small companies and big companies, are shaking up markets by doing things differently. And one of the companies which I came across and which I'm in regular contact with uh, is a healthcare company which profiles DNA. And uh, being able to profile your DNA obviously is, you know, amazing thing. And it's only sort of uh, a short time since we were starting to be able to do that for the first ever time. But to be able to understand your personal DNA is quite life changing. Um, so being able to understand what diseases or illnesses you might be susceptible to in the future, being able to maybe change your diet, change your lifestyle, take preventive action against that, being able to understand where you come from, where your ancestors come from through history, um, who you're connected to might be intellectually interesting. And so, you know, profiling your DNA is something which uh, I think, you know, is, is very quickly becoming something which people are interested in. And only three years ago, uh, it would have cost $9,000 to profile your DNA. And in that last three years, the price has come down enormously to, to $99. And there's a lady in San Jose in California called Anne Wojcicki. She used to be the, the wife of Sergey Brin, the founder, the co-founder of Google. And Anna Wojcicki, she has this company called 23andMe. It's called 23andMe because you have 23 chromosomes in your DNA. And she profiles people's DNA for $99. And basically you spit into a test tube and then you send it to her. And within 24 hours, she can process it. It's in her labs and she can sequence your DNA and then she can give you a 40, 50 page printout which tells you all about yourself, where you've come from, and where you're going. Wonderful. So I think that's uh, you know incredible science. What's interesting beyond that is that she did two tests recently um, in terms of advertising to get more people to do this. One was that she promoted it as a thing about uh, uh, improving your future health, and one was about uh, understanding your ancestors. And uh, she ran two TV commercials, and actually, it was the understand your ancestors, which people much, much more responded to. Wow. So really quite interesting in terms of what motivates people to be able to understand their DNA. So you did it. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Scandinavia. Wow. So uh, yes, that's for my name. So Fisk being sort of uh, fish Norwegian in Swedish. Fish. Yeah. And so maybe I've got a bit of Estonian in me somewhere. <laughs> Might be. But another example or another candidate you had also. The other example comes from Estonia, and it's a Stigo bike, or Stigo bike. Which do which do you say? You never Stigo heard. Bike? bike, Stigo, bike. yeah, Stigo bike, yes, Stigo have bike. heard, yeah. And I was uh, I was spending um, two days with a group of marketers in Panu recently, yeah. and uh, we were exploring the changing world and looking at innovation in each of their industries. And we were looking for who are the, the game changers, the people who are doing things differently today uh, in, in Estonia. And uh, I thought Stigo Bike was a fantastic example. Um, so being able to take an electric scooter, so it's electric, it's zero carbon emission, um, and then being able to fold that up with one button in, in two seconds, um, being able to fold it up into something which is the size of a pushchair when it's folded up. Was, was unbelievable. And so, you know, being able to ride on your electric scooter to the airport, being able to fold it up and to put it into the uh, overhead, overhead luggage or to jump on the train and take your, your scooter with you to put it under your desk when you're at work, 
you know, I haven't seen that quite as sophisticated and as quite as uh, um, advanced in terms of both the technology, but also the simplicity of what it seems like. For me, it seemed like the, the iPod of, of, of the electric bike world. And, uh, and, and I found it in Estonia. So I was, uh, I was very impressed. Thanks for your candidates, Anu. Your candidate, please. My candidate for this week is um, is a global one, um, and it's uh, Mattel uh, and the Barbie doll. As uh, for the first time in uh, the history, Barbie is going to become an entrepreneur, and I think it's uh, it's a very good example for young young girls that they can do something else with their lives, not just to become hairdressers or cosmetics or 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 maybe even i don't know teachers or or kindergarten uh, teachers that they can do something that uh, that uh, they can change their lives do something differently and that's why i would like to give them an award so we have three candidates i will not add anyone this week because i have two too many of them, so we will have to pick from those three. But Raul, then, you are the first one, as you didn't nominate an award, uh, a candidate, wh whom will you give a voice? I think this time, I actually, this, this your metal is, is good, but also the first one, uh, first one about this uh, GNA uh, thing uh, was interesting. So well, if I think uh, carefully, I, I would give to the GNA analysis for $99. And you will get do the test? Yes, tomorrow. <laughs> I hope it's going to be available in Estonia. I read the article about them. I don't rem remember, was it in Forbes or somewhere? So uh, I really thought that if I had the chance, I would uh, would love to do it. Uh -huh. But oh, your candidate? You. Yeah, I will buy the mattel for my girl when she will becomes a bit older. But uh, but now I would give my vote to the to the uh, to the. DNA. DNA test. Yes, so DNA receives our marketing star. Uh, tell me once again how the company was 23? 23 and me. Oh, okay. 23andme.com. So they receive our marketing star. I, I hope it's their first star. <laughs> yeah, from us. And the case study sounds like that. We are a small brewery in Western Estonia and planning to bring our first beer to market during the next couple of months. As a small brewery, we don't um, uh, have the marketing resources at the same level as the market leaders, and we cannot keep the price on the level. The price is going to be at least 2 2.5 times higher compared to the mainstream brands, but still we are very passionate about our beer, and we do believe that the quality is going to be be the best in Estonia. I have a friend that works as a purchase manager in a supermarket chain and he told that they could consider our beer on the shelves. How should we market the beer is the question. What is special about this beer? The best quality. <laughs> Everybody says that. Yes, that's a it's good It's difficult start. for me as I don't drink beer, so if you, you two do, so please please comment the about the beer quality and, and how to market time, it. Last time, you know, last time when I, I bought, we have this new, new beer, beerish uh, have started and, and uh, many different small local beers have come to our shop. So, so I, went to, I went to sauna with my friends and, and, and I took different, one of every sort with me. And I would say that uh, they, are, they were so different than in, in a simple case, you go to the shop and, and you buy, it doesn't actually matter what you take. Is it Danish beer, Estonian beer or whatever? It's almost the same beer. But those local ones, they are completely different. So I would say that a couple of them that I bought, I will never buy again, never, never ever. And one of them was really fantastic. But if you ask me what was the taste, I even can't explain it. So it's a really difficult question. What do you think? You, you drink beer? I do, yes. So what, um, what, what do you suggest them what to start with? Well, I would, uh, I would think, and, and I'm going to give you a bit of logic first of all. So, you know, I think um, one of the kind of ways of thinking is who is your customer? And we've kind of talked about that a lot. But, you know, don't try to target this beer at everybody. This is not an average beer and therefore do not target the average customer. 
Um, the second part, if it's not an average beer, it's probably a niche beer. So who is your niche audience you're going for? means that it's probably not a supermarket beer. So think about your distribution channel. Um, and maybe you know a different type of distribution channel might be more important. Um, uh, I worked with a beer company in France, and they found that selling um, beer through um, small shops, selling it through health food shops, um, selling it through uh, cafes uh, to take away, became became a much more uh, powerful thing and, and, and being able to differentiate from, 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 from competitors and reach their target audience. Um, another thing with beer, um, I was working with Coca-Cola and uh, in, in Coca-Cola, we, um, we found that in different countries around the world, people you drink, drink drinks at different times of the day for different reasons. So for example, in Australia, people drink beer, drink Coca-Cola between meals and they drink Coca-Cola um, at meal times in India. And so thinking about the occasion when people drink beer is, is, is also important. And then obviously you, you've got uh, flavors and, and, and that kind of stuff in terms of the product itself and the packaging of it. Um, and you can look at people like Stella Artois who make a big thing in terms of being a premium beer and therefore creating a different type of glass and bottle by which you, 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 you buy and you drink that beer. So, so to give you my um, thought, and this is just a, a radical uh, provocative thought, um, firstly, um, maybe women would be a good target audience. Uh, so most beers are targeting men. So why not target women? Um, I worked with Nike and Nike stores are nearly always targeting men. They're loud, they're full of music, they're about football, they're about aggression and adrenaline. And Nike created a chain of stores called Nike Women, uh, which were much more about, you know, much more feminine, about yoga, about relaxation. They had water running and it was like a spa. And so sometimes by changing your audience, you can find uh, something which is really useful. And, and the other thing which, um, which, which, which uh, kind of made me think about that was looking at a, a brand like Kami, which uh, is created by Carlsberg. And it's been incredibly successful by adding uh, things like caramel. Uh, so you can have caramel beer or chocolate beer, or you can have raspberry and passion fruit beer. Um, so fruit beers uh, being something quite classic in Belgium, for example. Um, so thinking about how can you target your audience and then think about, well, how can you enhance the beer for that particular audience? Chocolate beer sounds disgusting to me, but, but for well, the for women, it's okay, I believe. <laughs> sure. And, and the third thing comes, third idea comes from, uh, from New Zealand, actually. And one of the game changers in my book is actually a, a, a brand of beer called Moa beer. And I'm sure the Moa beer or the Moa brewery is probably smaller than even this Estonian brewery. And it's actually created by winemakers and it's created by a master winemaker who, who, who does make Cloudy Bay uh, white wine uh, from the Marlborough region of New Zealand. And that's a you know, classic, fantastic wine. And, and this guy uh, called Alan Scott decided he wanted to, well, he likes beers actually better than wines. And so he decided to make beer, beer too. And so he applied his classic traditional winemaking techniques to beer. So he created a fantastic product. And then he said, well, you know, what I really like doing is I like drinking wine in the evening with my wife over dinner. But, you know, beer I drink in the morning. And so he decided to create a breakfast beer. So what uh, Moa beer does more than anything else and why it's become uh, uh, famous around the world increasingly is because it's probably the best breakfast beer and marketed for a different occasion. So, so my 20, well, not 20 second, uh, my two minute advice to your Estonian brewery would be to target women and think about breakfast. <laughs> Thank Very you. And good. chocolate. Chocolate also a favorite. Oh, chocolate yeah. as well, yes. And Raul, whilst, you're, what... whilst you're having breakfast with beer, think about chocolate. <laughs> Roland, what is your advice? Be different. Think about your customer and then be different and relevant to them. <laughs> That's true. Raul. Actually, those were so so good suggestions. Difficult to add anything. But but <laughs> if, if, if to add... Actually, I, I was thinking the same way. I was thinking you have to pick another another part and and, and another interesting part uh, 
for uh, for me uh, it's not joke uh, for uh, I, I've always uh, been looking at um, at uh, different sexual groups so the homosexuals uh, is uh, one of the uh, uh, part that is really interesting as a marketer for me because their identity is very clear uh, we we all know that absolute vodka came from there so so why not to try there yeah, absolutely. What, what I was thinking, I think I do agree with uh, with all of you uh, what what you told, but there might be also a, an occasion that when you think about how women, how do women use beer? Then Peter, did you know that uh, beer is good uh, to use as a shampoo? Okay. You didn't. Uh, no. So it's a kind of old Estonian tradition to to wash hair with with beer. Um, so it has some kind of, I don't know what influence, but it's used. So it might be, maybe there are some other things in the cosmetic world that it could be, you could even develop the beer, not towards uh, the classical beer, but used in a different way. And the other source is also, the other thought what I had was that uh, that we see more and more beer uh, being mixed with, uh, with different foods. Let's say that now we have sausages, that are um, somehow marinated in beer or something. So you can use a beer as an additional, let's say, ingredient in, in a food industry making, maybe, I don't know, maybe you can make bread out of beer, maybe you can make the sausages or meat or something else. So it might be a good source for, for product innovation. So you might behave in the market in a totally different way, not trying to sell the bottles bottles to the, uh, to the people who already have it. Or maybe then to launch a beer called Beer for Sauna or something that is probably one of the most popular occasions by Estonians drink beer. Nighttime beer. If in, if in <laughs> uh, southern part of the world they like the beer for breakfast, so here they love a beer at nighttime. So this is a new in the sauna that washing their hair with chocolate beer, okay, it's amazing. Only in Estonia. Welcome to Estonia. Yeah. Thank you a lot for the show today. Our listeners, please uh, listen to us in a week's time. And meanwhile, be, please uh, uh, send us interesting cases. Uh, that we love to solve here, uh, send them to our Marketing Institute uh, email. It's mi at mi.ee or call to us. We'll write down your case study and discuss it here. Sulle meeldis Turundus Radio. Teili endale meelde tuletus järgmiste saadete kohta Marketing Instituudi kodulehelt.